Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we just thank you. We come before you with hearts of thanksgiving. You've saved us from death and judgment through Christ's death and resurrection, and yet things are not how they should be. Father, bring peace to Gaza and surrounding areas. Give discernment to political and military leaders as they make life-altering decisions. Would wisdom, justice, love, and peace prevail? Would lives be spared? Father, would you bring many to saving faith? We think of City Bible Church and Pastor Marwan, those ministering in Lebanon so close to the conflict. Father, we pray that you would help them lead in these times. Father, we also rejoice in the midst of tough times and challenges. Lord, we Rejoice for Ashley and Ruby's wedding. Lord, bless the ceremony. May it glorify Christ. Cause their marriage to commend the gospel. Would, would, would they be a ray of light in dark places? Father, we rejoice with Crossroads Church. Father, may the gospel ring out in Dira as they sing and as they preach and pray and gather for fellowship even today. Deepen their community. Encourage weary hearts. Grow their faith. Save many. Father, we thank you for the faith and work retreat that happened this weekend. We thank you for the team from, from the U.S., from NBC. We thank you for Pastor Brad and the team, Lord. We thank you for all those that participated in the retreat from a number of churches and for those who are sitting in this room who are there. Oh, Father, we pray that we as a church, that we as we, as we go about our work, as we go about uh, serving you at work, Lord, would we be men and women of integrity, of honesty, of truth, of boldness, would we go without, without fear and with those around us see something different about us? And Father, we pray for Pastor William, his wife Joni, their whole family, the ministry in Tunis, Tunisia. Oh, Father, would the church flourish? Lord, we pray for those nine churches and others. Lord, protect them from persecution there in Tunisia. Would you bring more men, women, and children to come to know Jesus? Oh, Father, would you do a most miraculous work opening the eyes? Twelve million people, 99% Tunisian. Lord, we pray that you would save souls and multiply churches there. We pray for Libya. We pray for Algeria. Oh, Lord, we we, we grieve with, Lord, we grieve with those in prison. Lord, there's brothers and sisters in Libya on death row. Oh, Father, we pray that you would free them. Father, we know they've been freed from the chains of sin. Pray that you'd free them from physical chains. Lord, we pray that you would spread the gospel throughout North Africa. Pray that many would come to faith in the dry and desert land. <clears throat> we pray this knowing that you are our faithful God who hears our prayers. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles or your bulletin, you'll find our passage for the week, Romans chapter 6. So remember, we've been in condemnation, justification. Last week we started this section called sanctification. In Romans chapter 6. And just a note as you're turning there, two weeks from now, so we'll be here next week, same time, same place. Uh, but about four times a year we, we have to move. And so in two weeks, we'll be meeting at the Jumeirah Creekside Hotel in Garhood at 4.30 and 6.30 p.m. So just make a note, not next week, but just two weeks from now. It's in the, in the bulletins, but just, just to get that note out there for you. Well, we usually have scripture readers, but today I'm going to read the text just as we go on through 
the passage as we walk through chapter 6. Last week we saw that as Christians, we're free from the domination of sin. That sin has no dominion over us. We're in Christ, and yet we still fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Christians aren't perfect, but because of our salvation, because of our union with Christ and being filled with the Holy Spirit, we fight against the schemes of the evil one. We work hard at sanctification, this process by which we look more and more like Jesus. And I shared an illustration at the end of the sermon, this illustration by the great Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he talks about these two fields, one field separated by an insurmountably tall wall that separates one field from uh, another field. And Lloyd-Jones says, just imagine that everybody's born in one field, and we're actually all born in the same field. And in this field, this field is a field dominated by sin and by Satan. And we're all born into sin, and we all sin. And that wall, it's too high to climb. It's too high to scale. There's no way for us to get from one field to get to this other field, which is dominated and ruled by Jesus and his righteousness. But God does something. God does something through his grace. When he saves someone, he, he opens our eyes to believe. And what happens is he, he goes down into that one field, into that field ruled by sin and Satan, that satanic field, and he, he picks us up and he takes us out of that field and he puts us down in that other field ruled by Jesus and his righteousness. And when that happens, a change takes place, a change of position, a whole new relationship to sin. And remember Lloyd-Jones's point, though. Yes, we're moved from one field to the other, from the domain of darkness to the domain of light, from the rule of Satan to the rule of Jesus. You may be in a different field, one ruled by God, but you could still hear Satan calling over the wall from the field you used to be in. And so out of a little enticement, out of a little enjoyment, we still sometimes sinfully obey Satan's voice. Even though we don't have to. And this is what Paul is talking about. On the one hand, there's a status change. One field to the other field. We're in Christ but on the other hand, there's still this openness. There's still this struggle with sin. It's not that we become a Christian and all of a sudden we become perfect. It's not that, oh, we come to Christ, we're justified, and we're automatically 100% holy. No, we never get there in this life. There's no perfection, holiness, theology. There's no time when we finally figure it all out and we're, we're sinless. No, no, this Christian life, it is, it, is, uh, it, is, it is a ramp and it's a slow ramp up until we get to glory where we become more and more like Christ as we go. But until that day, there will be this struggle and we're going to have to fight. We're going to have to fight temptation. We're going to have to fight sin. We're going to have to flee the evil one. We're going to have to flee this world. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But remember, remember what I said last week, remember, he's on the other side of the wall. You're in Christ now. Satan can't get you. Don't listen to his lies. Be who you are. You're united to Christ. And while that freedom was emphasized last week, Paul's chief illustration 
in our passage today is slavery. As followers of Christ, we are free from the slavery of sin. Now, once again, I, I don't really have sermon points for a world record two weeks in, in a row. No outline. I, I don't think that's a, a new trend. It just worked out that way. I love points. In my thir- third sermon in Redeemer in February 2010, I had 15 application points. So I still love points. I just don't have them this month, it seems. But chapter 6 just flows naturally out of chapter 5. And what Paul wants to do here is clarify any misunderstandings from that teaching. We're we're, we're free in Christ. It doesn't mean we're free to sin. That's what he talks about in chapter 5. He wants to clarify any misunderstandings. And he starts verse 15 just like he starts chapter 6 verse 1 with a rhetorical question and a very similar rhetorical question. Look at verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Now while Paul talks about this earlier in the passage, a question could still come. If we're no longer under the law, shall we continue on in sin? Again, I love how Paul answers the question. Remember in the original language, it's even stronger than what can come across here in English. May it never be. God forbid, for heaven's sake, no. I'm glad we at least get the exclamation point there at the end of verse 15. By no means. We can't go on sinning like we did as non-believers. Why? Well, because the Holy Spirit has transformed us and we are in Christ Jesus. Verse 16 goes even further. We're no longer under the dominion of sin. But now Paul uses the imagery of slavery. This would no doubt have gotten the listener's attention. It certainly gets our attention even today. Some have estimated that in these times, one-third of Rome's population were slaves. That means many in the church had been or are slaves. Everyone would have understood slavery in their day. To grasp Paul's illustration, we need to understand a little bit about slavery in its context. Today, when we think of slavery, maybe one of two things comes to mind. We may think back to the slave trade in the West. Or you may think of the kidnapping of people today and enslaving them to any myriad of wicked things. But in the ancient world, there was a much more common type of slavery, a primarily voluntary servitude. If you had a debt you couldn't pay, you could offer your services to to work off the debt. In a sense, to enslave yourself to someone to work off the debt. If you didn't have a house to live in, if you had no food to eat, you could do that. You could offer yourself in exchange for these necessities. That's the context here when Paul asks in verse 16, look down there, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? Here's the options. Either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Now, once you offer your freedom to someone, you can't be enslaved to them and free simultaneously. Well, that's impossible. Paul's point is either we're slaves to sin or we're slaves to obedience. Everyone is a slave. 
The only way the master's authority over a slave ends is when a slave passes into the ownership of a new master. Paul says slavery to sin leads to death. That's the only outcome. This isn't a slavery that was sometimes necessary for survival in the ancient Near East. It's a slavery that's voluntary. It's completely unnecessary. You're choosing, this, in this slavery, you're choosing to attach yourself to the master of this world. When you sin, it's not a mistake. It's a complete rebellion. It's a turning away from Jesus. It's a putting the world, the flesh, and the devil as supreme in your life. It's saying to God that you as a master have not and do not provide enough for me. You're not good enough. And so I'm going to enslave myself into the world. I'm going to enslave myself to the world because the world's going to take care of me. The world's going to fill my deepest longings more than God will. Well, what does slavery to sin look like? Well, it looks like a lot of things. What could living for the supremacy of the world, what could that look like for us today? Well, some of us are slaves to our work. We had a faith and work retreat. We talked about how to work to the glory of God, how to be faithful in the workplace. But some of us are slaves to our work. We can't close our laptops or shut down our phones. We carry them everywhere. We're obsessed with work. We take working vacations. Perhaps your specific career, you're enslaved to your career, and it has a grip on your heart. Because we always want more. We get that promotion, but what happens as soon as we get that promotion? We start thinking about that next promotion, or that next one, or our five-year goals, or ten-year goals. could be good things, but when we make good things the main thing, it ruins everything. Thing. Well, could it be a search for significance in our achievements? If you're enslaved to success, you will experience drivenness, but then fatigue and worry and fear. Some of us are slaves to things, to, to toys. We want toys. We want the next video game, a pair of shoes, new technology. But let's not fool ourselves. All of us at times are enslaved to things. New car, house, what someone else has. It's never enough. How about money? Some of us have money, some of us don't, some of us are in debt, some of us look at our investments all the time, dreaming about safety or security or the fun we could have with that money. Some of us are in debt and we dream about being out of debt and we play the if only game. If only I was out of debt, if only I had no debt, then I'd be happy if only I didn't have this debt, then I wouldn't feel so suffocated, and then I would truly be happy. Or we hope for a certain amount of savings. But what happens when we get there? We're not free from a love of money all of a sudden. We want more and more. As a billionaire oil tycoon once said, how much is enough? Implying it's never enough. It's never enough. We're always dreaming about how to acquire more. Well, maybe you're enslaved to relationships. Maybe that's what it is for you. Whether you're in school, you're, you're a child, or, or retired. You want the approval of others more than anything else. You want to be included, and so you wait for others to invite you. And then, as one author said, you cycle between self-acceptance and self loathing It depends on whether you get that invitation, whether you get that affirmation that you feel like you deserve. You're paranoid. You think people speak about you behind your back. You're behind your back. If you're enslaved to approval, you're 
you'll constantly experience self-pity and envy and hurt feelings, inadequacy. We want people to like us. Maybe we're enslaved to ourselves. Psychologists have a name for this. It's called narcissism. Maybe you know the mythological tale. The name comes from a figure in Roman mythology called Narcissus. Uh, he, he, he fell in love with his own reflection in a pool of water, in a stream of water. And he loved himself so much, he loved his reflection so much that he actually leaned over to kiss himself, the object of his love. But it disturbed the peaceful water. And it was as if his image just floated away. It left him heartbroken. The tale goes, he dared not drink of the stream again for fear of losing his lover forever. Eventually, the slave of self-love died of thirst. Slavery to self only leaves us feeling emptier. And it's exhausting, isn't it? It's exhausting trying to attract others' attention and others' affirmation. It's exhausting and it leaves us feeling emptier. Others are enslaved to habits that dominate their existence. It's my way or the highway. Education can be enslaving. You can do this to, your, to yourself. You, you've just got to get that grade or score those test results. Parents can put that kind of unfair pressure on their children. Adventure could be enslaving. Another holiday, another trip, that race, that memory, that experience. Slavery can come through a number of addictions to food, sports, television shows, endless social media scrolling. Sexual intimacy outside marriage is enslaving. It's a trap. Proverbs tells us it's, it's a trap. It may look good. You willingly walk into it, but you only feel emptier after it. It's like walking in a pitch black room. You struggle not knowing how to step out of it because it's a trap and you've been caught. It's dark. Everyone is a slave to someone or something. Everyone is offering themselves to someone. Everyone lives for something. Tim Keller once said, anything you worship besides God promises much but delivers worse than nothing. It's a slavery, he says. A constant treadmill of seeking to grasp or hold on to something that can never really deliver. The only benefit of idolatry is brokenness. Well, friends, there is no benefit. Paul says our only hope is Christ. The last song we're going to sing today is, All I Have is Christ. That's what Paul is saying here. There's another kind of slavery that is fulfilling. If we're slaves to obedience, it will lead to righteousness. It's this slavery that brings joy. It's this last slavery that leads Paul just to burst out into doxology. Look at verse 17 there in your, in your Bibles. He just burst out. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Verse 18, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. We have this spontaneous statement of praise at the beginning of verse 17. Why? Well, because an exchange of slaveries has taken place for those who follow Christ. Those who were once slaves to sin are now obedient from the heart, now slaves of righteousness. Well, what does the standard of teaching mean in verse 17? Well, it 
Paul's probably talking about a summary of the Christian faith. Gospel teaching versus legalistic teaching. Paul contrasts Christian teaching with the Jewish law. Verse 18, when we're born again and follow Christ, we don't choose whether to serve Christ as Lord or obey his teaching. God has already giving, given us over to it. We know we can't be saved by righteousness, but as R.C. Sproul once said, the primary business of the Christian life is the quest for righteousness. Let me say that again. The primary business of the Christian life is this quest for righteousness. We have a new master. We have a new master. Not sin, but him. Verse 19. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Now, Paul admits something here. He understands the illustration of slavery is imperfect. It's not best. But he wants the Romans and he wants us to comprehend what he's saying here. There's not one illustration powerful enough to describe the wonderful reality of salvation. Not a single analogy could sum up the glories of Christ. But Paul puts it in human terms here, he says, so that we can grasp what God is doing in saving us. Well, the Christian life is certainly more than slavery to God. We experience God's love, the gentleness of God, the freedom to follow Him. But Paul wants us to see that being a Christian ultimately means that we are a slave to Christ. Remember, he answers the question of whether we as Christians can go on sinning. He shows us a radical change of status that happens to us when we become Christians. And he wants the Romans to apply it. He wants the Romans to live like it. Paul turns to the imperative mode, uh, to, to, to a command. This is a command believer. Here's the response you must have to what God has done for you. And that brings us really to the center point of the passage. And again, Paul reminds us, yes, you've been set free. This is who you once were when you were in bondage to sin. So now. You, you were a slave to sin, but you've been taken from that field of slavery, and you've been put in a new status, you've been given a new status, you're free from sin, free from the domination of sin. So live like it. So live like it. Here's the command again. Present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Paul encourages us to make a wholehearted commitment to righteousness. The indicatives of the, of the passage lead to the imperatives, to the commands. Remember, God has placed us in the other field. Our status has changed, but we still have to fight Still to fight sin, Satan, the world. We still have to flee from sin, flee from temptation. We have to cling to Christ. We need to run to Jesus, run away from sin and to be with him. Now, justification, sanctification, as we said last week, they go hand in hand. We're declared righteous, justification, yes. But then sanctification, the process of becoming like Christ, both are given by the grace of God. And both go hand in hand. Interestingly, Paul says, before you were saved, you were slaves to impurity. He's saying, you did whatever you could to sin. 
It's who you were. You thought about sin. You planned sin. Sin consumed you. Not only does that stop now that you're a believer, here's the deal. That's what Paul is saying here. Now, as a follower of Christ, we need to put even more effort into following Christ in our sanctification than we once did in our sin. God commands us to act. The very fact that Paul's letters are peppered with commands show us that obedience isn't automatic. We don't 100% become holy the side of eternity. Our commitment to serving righteousness should be more robust than our previous commitment to sin and unrighteousness. We look around this in this world, pursues fame and fortune as ultimate. As Christians, our primary pursuit should be righteousness and holiness. And we should do whatever it takes to grow in holiness. I mean, think back to before, Christian, think back to before you became a follower of Christ. And think about how consumed you were with sin. Paul says, now be consumed with righteousness even more. Even more than that. Daydream about how to grow in Christ. Plan to grow. It's been said, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. No, intentionally put yourself in positions to be consumed with righteousness. A slave has one all-consuming passion. So fellow Christian, put yourself in a position to be consumed with righteousness and holiness and godliness. We call this means of grace or maybe spiritual disciplines. Put yourself in those positions for God to work on your heart. Stay in the light. Stay away from the darkness. Read your Bible regularly alone. Read it one-on-one -on -one with someone. Join one of our community groups and study with others in your neighborhood. Sit under the preaching of God's Word. It's good that you're, you're here today, but come back next week and the week after and the week after is because it, it's so easy for us to forget the, this message of the Scriptures. And so sit under preaching of God's Word, but then pay attention to it and apply it to your own life. Sometimes it's easy to listen to the preaching and apply it to our spouse or apply it to our kid or someone else we know, but take it to, your, take it to heart yourself. Delight in the Lord's day. Enjoy fellowship with God and fellowship with each other. Meditate on and memorize portions of Scripture. Now this is not some kind of Eastern meditation. When we talk about meditation as Christians... This is not an emptying of our minds, but a distinctly Christian meditation actually fills our minds with Scripture. And so we read Scripture slowly, and we meditate on it, and we apply it, and we praise God, and we worship Him. We also memorize Scripture, so we have Scripture in our minds and in our hearts to recall at any point in time. Pray as you read the Bible. You could go through Paul's prayers in the epistles, or pray the Lord's prayer in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, go through the Psalms, or any portion of Scripture that you're studying. Pray through it. Pray for others using those Scriptures. And sometimes, just sit back and consider the whole storyline of Scripture from Genesis all the way to Revelation. The whole arc 
of Scripture. And just remember what God has done in saving sinners and what's to come when Jesus comes back. Pray with your family. Pray for your friends, for non-believers, for classmates, for co-workers, for fellow university students. Pray for people you don't like very much and pray for people who don't like you very much. Pray for least reached people groups. Pray for Tunisia. Pray for those in our country. Pray with one another here on Sundays. I just love it when I look out afterwards and people are just praying together. Share your prayer requests. Confess your sins to one another as the book of James tells us. And just pray together. Take a prayer walk. Have a prayer list. Just sit in silence sometimes. Just be bored. I don't know if that's scary for some of us. Just let yourself be bored sometimes without getting out your, your phone or without having to do this or do that. Just be bored. Sit in silence and consider God's faithfulness to you in the past. Consider God's faithfulness to you in the present. And remind yourself that because God has been faithful in the past and God is faithful in the present, that God will indeed be faithful to you in the future. Reflect on a different attribute of God. Maybe take a different one each week that God is all-powerful. God is all-knowing. God is loving. God is just. God is holy. And just meditate on who God is. Journal the gifts God's given you. Write them down. Chronicle God's goodness to you. Stare at a tree. Sounds a little crazy. I know we don't have that many trees in Dubai, but we do have. We have palm trees, and there's some green trees around. Stare at a tree. Stare at a flower. Look at the desert. Look at the sands. Look at the ocean. Look at a bird flying. Look at a butterfly just fluttering away. Amaze yourself with God's creation. Remember that he is the creator, and he created all of that, and he created you, and he created you to be in a relationship with him, and that is utterly astonishing. Stop for a moment, just whenever, and just thank Jesus for dying for you. Take a nap. Take a nap. Go to bed early. I think it was D.A. Carson, I think, who once said, sometimes the most holy thing we can do, the most godly thing we can do is just take a nap. Go to bed early and trust your life and your tasks to God, even if they're not done. Just remind yourself that you're not in control, but God is. Get some sleep. Think about heaven often. Think about Jesus coming back. Think about being with all the saints from all times, all places, all people groups, with our triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, for all eternity. Read good books. Get a good book from our bookstall. Read a book out loud to your family. Take an equipping class or a, a seminary class. Regularly confess your sins to others. Be accountable to a few friends. Call someone on the phone just to see how they're doing and to pray for them. Join the church as a member. Get help walking with Christ. Serve in an area of ministry. Teach the children. Serve on a, on a team. Serve God by sharing the gospel with non-believers, co-workers, neighbors, friends, family. Just people as you meet along the way. Go into your office or school and look for surprising ways to serve others. And ruthlessly and immediately cut out sin from your life. If needed, drunkenness, gambling, cursing, gossiping. Stop scrolling through those online videos. Cancel that subscription. Stop reading that conspiracy theory website. Get rid of that app. 
Stop texting that person you're not supposed to be texting. Stop looking at your phone all the time and look to God. Oh, friends, start with one sin today and just start, just start killing it. Probably a whole long list of things that each of us need to kill. Start today. Start somewhere. I don't know what it is for you, but if you're a slave of Christ, you're a child of God. And so, Redeemer Church, let's look like one. Let's look like a child of the Almighty. Let's be who we already are. Let's live that out. Let's be consumed with righteousness. Let that be the, the primary duty of our lives. This is challenging because Paul tells us there's actually a kind of freedom we experienced in slavery to sin. Look at verses 20 and 21. Verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Verse 21. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? <clears throat> For the end of those things is death. In a sense... Being a slave to sin does bring freedom, but only from the control of righteousness. Rejecting Christ to be free really isn't true freedom. That's what Paul is saying. When you do that, you're only free from living the way that will actually most satisfy you. That's actual slavery. Paul asks, what fruit did you get from this type of freedom? Death. The end of verse 21, death. That's the fruit. Death was the fruit because sin brings an eternal condemnation and separation from God. And so the results of slavery to God are a complete contrast. Verse 22. Look there. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Well, friends, there's a paradox here. Slavery to Christ is freedom, and freedom from Christ is slavery. Do you see that? I'll say it again. Slavery to Christ is freedom, Freedom from Christ, living our own way in this world, is actually slavery. Every slavery has a kind of freedom. Their fruit reveals it freedom to sin or freedom to live in Christ. Remember, we're all slaves slaves to sin or slaves to God. That's it. So, really, I, I, I do have a main point here in. The text, Paul is the main point in this text. We're all slaves, either to sin or to God. Which slave will you be? That's the main point of the sermon. You're either a slave to sin or a slave to God. Which kind of slave will you be? Because all of us are one of the two kinds of slaves. As we've walked through the book of Romans, you've heard me say time and time again that everyone in this room is either saved or not saved. Everyone in this world is either saved or not saved. There's no third way. There's no middle ground. There's no compromise. There's no halfway. There's no almost saved. You're either saved or you're not saved. Here, you're either a slave to the world and sin or you're a slave to God. That's it. No other status. Freedom from those 
two realities does not exist. And when we are slaves to sin, shame and death are the fruit. When you're a slave of God, eternal life and union with Christ is the fruit. The final verse of our chapter explains this contrasting outcome of slavery to sin and slavery to God. Look at this verse. Many of you might know it. It's one of the first verses I memorized as a Christian. Verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Remembering we deserve death, but that God has made a way is a fitting close to chapter 6, to this breathtaking chapter. Our sin paid us something. It paid us something. While we can't earn salvation, we can certainly earn something from our sin. And Paul says it's death. The alternative is we accept the free gift of eternal life. And that's good news. It's what Jesus has earned for us. The gift is Jesus. Because there's two ways to live. Paul in our passage calls them two slaveries. There's two slaveries to live. Two types of slaveries we can live in. Only two masters to choose from. Verse 16, slaves to sin or slaves of obedience. Verses 17 and 18, slaves to sin or slaves to righteousness. Verses 20 through 22, slaves to sin or slaves to God. Oh friend, which Slave will you be? Slavery to sin leads to shame and death. Slavery to God is the greatest freedom we could ever know. Adam and Eve sinned. They thought they had a better way to live. And that freedom was out there, they thought, if they would just take charge. But they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshipped and served the creation rather than their creator. They looked to sin rather than to God to provide what they needed. Again, Paul clarifies the choice here. Sin and righteousness mutually exclusive. In the words of Jesus, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. So choose your master. Who will you obey? Which kind of slave will you be? And if you don't know Christ, oh friend, you may think you're free. You may think you're free to do whatever you want, but you're actually a slave. Maybe you didn't know that, but you're actually a slave. To sin, to Satan, to this world. Leave the slavery of this world. I plead with you, leave the slavery of this world. And come into the freedom found in Christ. Come to true freedom. Following Jesus' commands is not a burden, it's a joy. Following his commands is a joy because when we fight sin and when we love God, we're living the way God created us to live, the way God designed us to live. But it's the way ultimately all of us have failed to live. Because none of us have followed God's commands perfectly. There's only one who lived in perfect obedience to the law, and that's Jesus Christ. Believe unto him to be saved. Jesus died on the cross to pay the wages of our sin. The wages of our sin is death. But Jesus, fully God, fully man, left heaven, came to earth, lived a perfect life, and he paid for those wages with his death. And on the third day, he rose 
from the dead, proving he is the way, the truth, and the life. His death for our death. He was the perfect substitute. But Jesus doesn't just pay the wages. He gives us something better. He gives us a free gift. He gives us union with Christ, oneness with Christ, new life. And that's what communion, as we partake in the Lord's Supper in a few moments, it's what it points to, the bread and the cup. We receive wages from Christ's death. And that's the free gift of eternal life. The bread symbolizing his life, the cup symbolizing his shed blood and death. Sin pays wages. Now the two slaveries are complete opposite. One leads to life, one leads to death. Sin pays wages. We get what we deserve. But God gives us a free gift. And when you believe unto him, you're given what you don't deserve, which is new life. Both our passage last week and this week, they start the exact same way, don't they? Look at verse 1. Look at verse 15. They ask a very similar question. Verse 1 says, shall we go on sinning? Because verse 5 was all about grace. Oh, your sins are forgiven. And so a natural question would have been asked, well, okay, if God forgives our sin, can we just go on and sin and live however we like? Remember, I taught you that big word, antinomianism. We're just going to live it up. We're going to sin it up because God will forgive our, our sins. Well, no, Paul clarifies that in verse 1. He says, shall we go on sinning? Verse 15, first verse of our passage today, shall we sin? Question mark. Do we have to stop sinning? Why not continue in sin? God will forgive me. A little sin here, a little sin there. I'm saved. God will take care of it. Oh, friends, those are lies. Those are lies from the evil one. Why? Well, last week it's because we're one with Christ. We have union with Christ. This week it's because we're slaves of God. We fight our sin because of who we are. You're always a slave to something or someone. True freedom is found only in slavery to Christ. A friend, you can be a slave to sin or a slave to Christ. Which kind of slave will you be? Let's pray. Oh, Father, as we approach the Lord's Supper, even now, we thank you. And for those of us who are followers of Christ, we are no longer slaves to sin, but we've been set free from the bondage of sin. We're now slaves to righteousness. May we live our lives commending the gospel and pointing to the reality that while the wages of our sin is death, you've given us a free gift. You've given us the free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus. May we celebrate this today as we take communion together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.